It's April 2008, and I'm on the A-Line, headed down to Lower Manhattan. Once I emerge onto the street, I walk a block west and past the site where the World Trade Center once stood. It's now a gray construction site, a gaping rectangle the size of a city block. Earthen ramps spiral down and around, and the whole thing looks like an inverted ziggurat. Even after all these years, it hurts to see it. But this is New York. Two blocks further on, and everything changes, including my mood. I'm now in the glass atrium of the World Financial Center. Street sounds are behind me, and sunlight fills the space. In the quiet, I'm looking at a giant aquarium full of coral. Jellyfish float in one corner, and kelp dangles down over spreading fans. There are sea sponges and wavy things that look like brains. Some of the coral is eight feet tall. It is this quiet marvel of color and life. But the most marvelous thing is that this coral reef is made of yarn. In this episode, we dive into a place where art, ecology, science, and math come together into something extraordinary. And we'll take an emotional journey, too, from joy to disappointment, devastation, and regeneration. Welcome to the Crochet Coral Reef. This is Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. I'm your host, Alison Korleski. Since 2007, the Crochet Coral Reef Exhibition has traveled around the world. It's the collective handiwork of thousands of people, but it started as the brainchild of one woman. My name is Margaret Wertheim, and uh, by profession, I'm a science writer and science communicator. But in the last 10 or 15 years, I've moved into the realm of science and art. Originally from Australia, Margaret and her twin sister Christine, an artist and professor, moved to California in the early aughts to work and teach but they didn't confine themselves to academia or elite art circles. Margaret has been writing about science for decades, not only in academic journals and books, but in a regular column for Australian Vogue. When she moved to the U.S., however, she discovered that women's magazines here had zero interest in covering science. So she created her own space to bring science and mathematics to a larger audience. My sister and I, in 2003, started an organization which we call the Institute for Figuring. And what we wanted was a means for putting on events where people could engage with science and technology and mathematics by being given the opportunity to make things and do things with their hands that would illuminate for them the mathematical concepts or scientific concepts we wanted to show them. They could turn these concepts, often very advanced and abstract concepts, into something that was fun. And they usually did that via some kind of communal craft, paper cutting, tile puzzles, and crochet. The sisters are from Queensland, also home to the Great Barrier Reef. The coral reef is 130,000 square miles. It is so big you can see it from space. 
It has 400 types of coral, 1,500 fish species. It's as biodiverse as the rainforest. And like the rainforest, the Great Barrier Reef is in trouble. Climate change and pollution are enormous threats. In 2020, a study found that the Great Barrier Reef had lost half its corals in just 25 years, mostly due to global warming. Massive heat waves have caused extensive bleaching, these vast swaths of dead and dying coral. As scientist and artist, Margaret and her sister wanted to do a project about the reef to raise awareness of what was happening. And so we thought, well, we could crochet a coral reef and we could invite other people to join us in this and we could collectively make um, an alternative to the Great Barrier Reef. And, you know, a funny and tragic thing is that literally the night that we started the project, my sister said, if the Great Barrier Reef ever dies out, our woolly one will be something to remember it by. And that was a joke 16 years ago. It's by no means a joke anymore. So why should we care about a reef dying? It's time to talk about coral. That giant reef you can see from space, like all coral, it started from a single polyp, an organism maybe one millimeter long, half a million years ago. So these tiny polyps attach themselves to marine rocks and start to clump together. When they die, they calcify, and new polyps attach to their skeleton. And over time, the whole thing grows enormous. These ancient structures are alive, kind of part rock, part animal, part plant, but they also support a ginormous web of other marine life. Plants, fish, all kinds of strange and beautiful creatures that David Attenborough does entire documentaries about. Maybe 25% of all marine life depends on coral for food, shelter, or places to spawn. But perhaps the most unexpected life form that depends on coral is us. Coral reefs put almost $30 billion into the global economy every year, mostly through fishing and tourism. Half a billion people rely on these reefs to make a living. Healthy reefs mean healthy oceans and a healthy planet. And the devastation of coral reefs hurts us all in the end. Getting back to our story, it's 2005. And Margaret and her sister have decided that they want to create a large-scale reef to bring attention to all of this. Their organization's mission is to engage with science in a very hands-on way, often through craft. And the craft they choose this time around is crochet, a very specific type of crochet that totally looks like coral. What we're doing when we crochet these individual forms, which look like frilly curving sea creatures, we are crocheting hyperbolic surfaces. And hyperbolic geometry is an alternative to the Euclidean geometry that everybody learns at school. Wait, what? Remember that Margaret wants to get people to engage with science and mathematics. If reef biology is the science part, reef structure is the mathy bit. And this is probably the hardest, most abstract thing to try to talk about in a podcast without pictures, but I'm going to try. See, geometry is a branch of mathematics that describes space, physical space. Distance, angles, circumference, volume. We use it in building, in design, in everything from space travel to cooking. And this goes back to Euclid, a Greek mathematician living 23,000 years ago. Euclidean geometry, as she said, is the stuff we all have to learn in high school. 
It's all straight lines and points and flat surfaces, which is great if you're building a house or the pyramids. But our world is not flat. So then there's spherical geometry, which is all about how lines and shapes behave on a sphere like the Earth. Ever wonder why those flight maps and airplane magazines always show curved lines, not straight? That's spherical geometry in action. And from there, you move into what's called hyperbolic geometry, which is sort of like the opposite of a sphere, where lines and space go kind of nuts and everything gets super bendy. Think of a leaf of kale, or for that matter, a coral. Now, it shouldn't be a big surprise that the best mathematical and scientific minds for centuries couldn't figure out how to visualize or describe this bonkers space. Really, all they needed to do was look at some kale, but apparently no one thought of that. Anyways, it wasn't until 1997 when a Latvian mathematician named Dana Tamina picked up a crochet hook and created a model that worked. It started out as a crochet ring and then exploded in all directions into a series of undulating roughly curves before joining back in on itself. And we do have photos and diagrams on our show notes page so you can understand what I'm talking about. So even if you're not at all into math, take a minute and think about this. The geometry that we all have to learn to graduate high school that's seen as kind of a byword for logic was blown out of the water by a woman crocheting blobby things. And Dr. Tamina wrote a basic pattern for that model. We have it in our show notes if you want to try it. That pattern became the first polyp, so to speak, of the Coral Reef Project. The sisters put together their plan. The initial seeds of the project are really threefold. So one seed of the project is that when my sister and I learned how to do hyperbolic crochet, which we learned from reading about Dr. Tamina's work, it brought together for us our lifelong love of handicrafts because we had grown up knitting and sewing and crocheting and doing all that stuff from our mother. And we are both interested in mathematics and science. So we love this confluence of feminine handicraft and mathematics. They weren't alone in that. We started doing a lot of crochet ourselves. My sister is an extremely good and extremely fast crocheter. But we also put something up on the Institute for Figuring's website inviting people who wanted to um, come and join us and we put some basic information about hyperbolic forms and hyperbolic crochet. And randomly in the mail, packages started to arrive from all over the world, some from Australia, some from England, some from the U.S., few from other countries, and they were just self-selecting citizens who stumbled upon the project and said, I want to be a part of this. Soon after this, they got their first invitation to show the reef at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. That initial show was fairly small. Coral, kelp, a single sea slug, some shells in a glass case. Ten women created it, including Margaret and Christine. The next show in 2007 at the Chicago Cultural Center was a little more ambitious, though. For that one, they agreed to fill 3,000 square feet with their corals. And um, I said yes to this, and I told my sister, and she sort of, she could have just said, you're off your head, but instead she went into crochet overdrive and started manically crocheting a huge amount of stuff. They soon had 24 other people helping them with the project. Still, it's one thing to crochet some cool squiggly things and have other people make a lot more of those squiggly things, It's an entirely different matter to create a 3,000-square-foot installation of those squiggly things. Coming up after the break, curatorial considerations and a whole lot of chicken wire. 
We're back. Margaret and her sister have had a successful first show, but it was a relatively small collection of Yarny Quarrels. The next show was larger, insanely larger. So first of all, we started the project in our living room. Um, then to, it first of all took over the living room, then it took over the kitchen, then it took over the, ho- the entire bottom floor of our house. But making the pieces was only the first step. You have to think about everything from how are you going to take the va- vast mass of corals that people produce and turn it into something that looks interesting as a display. And, and I can say that pretty much always when you see, when the corals have all been arrived and they're just, you know, sitting in a storage room in the museum, it tends to look, as my sister likes to put it, just like a vast explosion in a woolly jumper store and it looks pretty, like, forbidding. So they made armatures to arrange all the corals on to make them look properly reefy. But that took planning too. So someone's got to design the structures and say, you know, do I want three big roundy things or do I want four point tall pointy things or, you know, what is the physical structure? Whatever the shape, the process was the same. Create a form using wood and cardboard tubes. Some corals were super dense and heavy, others were big and floppy, so they needed to take that into account. Then the entire frame got covered in layers and layers of chicken wire, then a layer of white felt to which they fastened the pieces. Now this is actually, again, extremely analogous to what a living reef is, because if you see a living coral reef, again, it's only the outer layer that is actually covered in living coral, and underneath the very outer skin of the living coral is thousands of years of the skeletons of dead coral, which looks white. In this way also our reefs are complete analogies of the real living reefs. Figuring out what went where could be time-consuming. They had so many different pieces from so many different people in a completely random assortment. So one organizing principle that you can do is is sort it into sort of color groups. Say, okay, we're going to have a white reef. That'll be our bleached section. We're going to have a red and purple section. We're going to have a, a blue and pink section. We're going to have a black section. During the lead-up to the second installation, Margaret and her sister had another idea because things weren't complicated enough. They invited Chicago crocheters to create their own reef, a satellite reef, in a different location. Hundreds of volunteers created items for both exhibits. Margaret was surprised by the big response. And this is a very, very unusual and powerful community engagement, community art, community science experience. We very much see the project in the tradition of sewing bees and quilting bees. And we, as feminists who grew up learning crochet and knitting and sewing from our mother, who learned them from her mother, and I you know, come from an entire tradition of women who grew up making their own clothes and by necessity. So I see, and we, Christy and I both see this, as very much in the tradition of feminine handicraft done at home as, you know, as necessity and as pleasure, because these crafts are very pleasurable to do. This pleasure is something that Margaret spoke about quite a bit when we talked. The project was not just a didactic exercise in marine biology. It was enjoyable. It was gratifying. Volunteers did it because they loved to crochet, period. And that's why we all do this stuff. Knitters, crocheters, quilters, whatever. It's because we find joy in using our hands. It had all come together. 
Environmental activism via a collective art project, one that used traditionally feminine activities in the traditionally masculine arenas of science and mathematics. They did more shows, maybe two a year, and each exhibit was different by design. We have a very basic introductory guide to hyperbolic crochet, which we give to everybody, and that just gives you the very basic techniques and you know gives you a place to start. But then we really the essence of the project is saying, use your own imaginations. Think of this like the evolution of life on Earth. All life on Earth begins with very simple seeds, you know, it begins with simple singular cells. And, you know, 300 million years later, you've got peacocks and giraffes, or three and a half billion years later, you get peacocks and giraffes and aardvarks and, you know, starfish. And so we want, we think of our project as being like a global experiment in evolution, that as people, as time goes by, people take the patterns and they make them much more complex and they produce much more complex looking forms and other people look at what what they've done and they say, oh, I could take that, but I could do this embellishment on it. And so like evolution, it's a sort of, it's an ever-evolving, ever-complexifying taxonomic tree of life. So we think of it as being like there is a crochet tree of life coming into being here. And the really creative people invent wholly new things that we've never seen before, and that's always a marvellous thing. The exhibitions were a critical success. Articles in major newspapers, TED Talks, even an invitation to the Venice Biennale, probably one of the most prestigious art and cultural organizations in the world. But for all that, they were still running into some pretty hard walls. Since that first show, there have been 29 coral reefs, not including the satellite projects. Margaret estimates that between 15 and 20,000 people have contributed to them. But quite often, at least at the beginning, The museums hosting the exhibits didn't want to acknowledge all the makers involved. That was unacceptable. And we've insisted that with every museum. And sometimes we've had to fight for that. Sometimes we've had to fight very, very hard to get museums to accept that. Now pretty much everybody accepts it as a good thing, but in the beginning it was a big, big battle to be faced. But our attitude is they are all artists. They are doing the producing the art. They deserve to have their gallery walls, their names on the gallery walls, just as if it was a Michelangelo or a Leonardo. It often took a lot of work to convince museum officials. The first thing that you try is the both the moral and the conceptual argument, which is these people are part of the project. We are morally bound to include them. Conceptually, it's interesting because this is a collective and the argument conceptually is this is like coral reefs. If you look at a coral reef, it's made by billions and billions of tiny little polyps, each of one who is insignificant on its own, but together they can produce the magnificence of the Great Barrier Reef, which is the first living structure you can see from outer space. So too, our ladies are like polyps. Together, no one can do anything on this scale, but collectively we can all do something vast and magnificent. Now, if that's not enough to convince a museum to do to put the names on the walls, which in the beginning sometimes it wasn't, we just pull an artistic hissy fit and say, we're the artists, this is the rules. <laughs> Here's something strange. If you go back and look at the names, Margaret's website lists the core contributors for each exhibition, almost every name is a woman's. 
which is odd because plenty of men crochet. We have thought a lot about this subject. Why are so few men doing this? It's not that guys don't do craft. There are guys doing craft in the elite art world. It's that they don't necessarily want to do it and share the name with a thousand other people. Our theory is that the reason the project attracts so many more women than men is not just that women, you know, there would be more women in general doing these kind of crafts, but it's something to do with the fact that women are much more willing to accept and embrace the proposition of I am one of a thousand artists, not just my name here. Gender plays a big role in the coral reef. There has long been a tension between art and craft communities, with one historically associated with men and the other with women. Art is seen as elite, sophisticated, whereas craft is seen as a domestic hobby. And Margaret has no patience with this Manichaean view of culture. We want to make it very clear that we regard this work as craft. We also regard it as art. So we definitively do not want to lose the affiliation with the history of domestic feminine craft. We believe that this that craft is one of the most important human activities in history and we want to have this seen as a continuation of the crafts that we learned when we were children, that our mother learned, that our grandmother practiced. Sadly, though, not everyone agrees with her. And though the project was a joyful one for the sisters, it could also be frustrating, even infuriating. I think that this is a really powerful project that crosses the boundaries of art and science. And this is one of the very rare projects I know of. In fact, I don't know of any other art and science project that is specifically aimed at women. And again, I would say that because it is aimed at women, it hasn't got the validation within the general art and science space that it should have, because most art and science you know, projects, uh, it's a very male-dominated space. This is a problem she sees, not just with the Reef Project, but women's work in general. It is not only undervalued and underseen and underrepresented and therefore underfunded in the art space, but it is even more underrepresented, undervalued, underseen in the science space. One of the things that has been very surprising to us about this project is when Christine and I started the project, our immediate assumption was that if the project was to take off, it would be embraced in the science world and we'd be invited to science museums and natural history museums and not the art world. But in fact, the very opposite has happened. Almost all of our exhibitions, almost all of the projects that we've been done have been done in art galleries and art museums. All of the funding that we've had for the project has come from the art world and none of the funding has come from the science world. And every time I have approached the Science Foundation to say, would you fund this project, they've told me don't even bother to put in an application. So that is something that, first of all, it broke my heart and then it broke my soul. I think it says appalling things about the state of the science funding world, that this is the most widely adopted grassroots science and art project that I've ever seen in my 40-year career as a science communicator, and not one science funder has even been willing to entertain an application. 
Hearing her say that, I'm kind of heartbroken too, and kind of pissed off. There is nothing like this project. I wonder if the science community is just unable to see past the yarn and their own biases. It is a wildly new form of science communication, science outreach, science engagement. And it gives women the experience of exploring these mathematical shapes as mathematics, but also as as things that can potentially be like evolutionary forms. This project is both a form of um, applied mathematics, but it's also an exercise, a global community exercise in applied evolutionary theory. And on that alone, that grounds alone, it's an amazing project, quite apart from the climate change. The fact that it demonstrates that evolution can happen if you start with very simple seeds and allow the algorithms to complexify, that you can get this diverse taxonomy of forms. It's living proof of Darwin's theory. At the time of our interview, there are five separate coral reef exhibits around the world. Margaret estimates roughly 10,000 hours of work went into each one, and she talks about them with a mix of pride and frustration. And as the coral reefs, the real ones, disappear, our woolly ones are, you know, filling the void, which was just the vision Chrissy and I had the night we started the project. We would never have imagined it could have become on this scale. You know, not in our wildest dreams would it have taken off so monumentally. And I think the reason it has is because there is this extraordinary universe of creative feminine energy wanting to be tapped, waiting to be tapped, not being tapped. And women want to do artistic projects. Why isn't anyone tapping into this energy? Shortly after we spoke, Margaret emailed me. She'd been working on an upcoming exhibition in Helsinki. It was exhausting work for her. She's pretty much a stage manager putting on a Broadway show for every one of these. But each show is exhilarating, too. All that creative energy from so many people. The thrill of seeing how each exhibit reflected a real coral reef. But this time, that reflection was too real, tragically real. The structures they'd created, she wrote, became infested with mold because of the extreme temperatures over the summer due to global warming. She went on to say that the beautiful crochet creatures have literally been killed by climate change, just like the living things. And that's because, unlike so many other museum pieces, these weren't kept in climate-controlled storage. And I think that says a lot about how women's work is valued by so many institutions, or not. But this is not the end of the Reef Project. Right now, people around the world are viewing five shows. And as I said, seeing it is revelatory. Seeing the work of so many hands brought together into a single organism that seemed alive. The Great Barrier Reef might not survive the next few decades. I hope it does. But I also hope that its crochet cousin continues to grow, to change, to evolve with every new show. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. And for those of you who wrote in, we have fixed those links to our show notes page. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Alison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Julia Pillard helped with research. 
Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media, and our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer. <laughs>